Let me welcome everyone to this second lecture by this year's Philippe Roman Professor in LSE Ideas, uh, Gilles Capel, Professor Gilles Capel from Sciences Po. It is a wonderful opportunity for us in Ideas and for LSE as a whole to have the person who is probably the world's foremost expert on political Islam in its various incarnations, both the way it has worked in the Middle East, how it's worked in the broader Islamic region, and how it's working in Europe with us as professor this year. It's very clear that political Islam has emerged as the Cold War came to an end as one of the great ideologies of the modern world in many different incarnations, in many different uh, shapes and forms, uh, very different uh, in its implications for Europe, for North Africa, for the Middle East, for, for the Indian subcontinent, um, and for Southeast Asia. And it is variety in terms of ideology, in terms of the main issues that are put under debate within political Islam that uh, Professor Capel is going to talk about today. He's also going to address the issue of whether this is an ideological development that by necessity would lead to a conflict with the West, which is an issue that is of great consequence for how the international system is going to look in the future. It is a wonderful opportunity for us to debate some of the key issues uh, that exist within international affairs, which of course part of the purpose for the setting up of LSE ideas, to debate the broad issues and their consequences. So Jill, without further ado, we are looking forward to listening to your lecture today. Welcome again to the LSE on behalf of the whole LSE community. It will be a great pleasure to listen to this and to the next two lectures in this series. Jill, please. Uh, thank you very much, Arnie. Thank you for those of you who already uh, came uh, the first time, So, and welcome to those who uh, come for this uh, anew. Um, today, we're going to uh, go back in history a little, as opposed to what we did last time, and uh, try to understand how the uh, Islamic political system, if I may say so, sort of plugged in in the world system. Uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. And as um, Arnie just said, and uh, uh, he, um, he's of course uh, an expert together with uh, the co-director of ideas, Professor Mick Cox of the, the international system and of the East-West uh, dispute. Um, uh, let's see how the world sort of changed eras in the, in the 1970s, and while uh, Islam was to some, to a large extent, non-existent in the world system before the mid-1970s, how it became a prominent actor in this world system. Uh, that uh, means that we have to, to define uh, what, we, what we call Islam, and uh, there are many contenders for, uh, for that name. Um, and uh, in order to, to, to try to understand uh, what it means, I think we have to go back to, uh, to basics and uh, analyze what happened on the ground. The reason why this lecture is called uh, Jihad after uh, the book I published uh, under that uh, title in uh, 2000 in French and in 2000 uh, 
late 2001 in English, uh, is that I believe that jihad in Afghanistan in the 1980s was the watershed event that um, changed uh, the whole issue of um, Islam on the political sphere. And uh, uh, jihad in Afghanistan had a multifaceted dimension. Uh, it was something that its promoters, uh, both uh, petro-monarchies of the uh, Arabian Peninsula and the United States, thought would be a, a key um, uh, issue to undermine the Soviet Union, to topple uh, the Soviet Union to, so that they would have a proxy war against the USSR and as a matter of fact uh, the uh, Afghan Jihad uh, ended in, on the 15th of uh, February 1989 with the pullout of the Red Army from Kabul and uh, when we think of 1989, we usually think of the fall of the Berlin Wall, but my, conten my contention will be that without the defeat in Afghanistan, there would have been no uh, exposure of, there would never have been such an exposure of weakness on the Soviet bloc, and Gorbachev would probably have had more cards in his, uh, in his hand at the time. So it was a key issue for uh, this proxy war against the USSR was a key issue uh, for the West. It was the, uh, Vietnam in reverse, if you wish. But by the same token, it uh, opened the Pandora's box of uh, radical Islam that led to 9-11. Uh, and uh, to a large extent, the soldiers uh, that uh, the US did not send to the field uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, the soldiers that um, and the money they did not spend, well, came back with a vengeance on 9/11, and the destruction in New York and, and Washington, to some extent, where the this was the, the freedom fighters' chicken that came home to roost. Um, something which was not entirely clear, and um, I believe in the in the in the minds of many analysts of that um, of that period, so we'll try to to center the today's lecture on this issue of the jihad in Afghanistan and uh, both in its in its international and domestic dimension. And uh, in order to to put it into perspective, uh, let me very briefly uh, give you some um, background elements. On um, how um, how this all uh, this whole thing started, um, the upsurge of um, political Islam uh, in uh, in Middle Eastern, North African, and then uh, South Asian and Southeast Asian, and later on Central Asian countries. Not to forget the outskirts of uh, major uh, European countries from Bradford to Aubervilliers, um, can be dated to uh, the mid-1970s. This was also a, a watershed decade when the first generation of uh, young people um, who had never experienced colonial domination 
came of age in the Muslim world. For some it would be later, for some it had been earlier, but the mid-1970s uh, is, uh, is, I think, a fair average. That is, this young generation had no memory of the colonial yoke, and therefore they held the rulers of the Muslim world accountable for what they delivered or what they considered those rulers did not deliver in terms of uh, goods socially, in terms of the economy, in terms of political pluralism, and so on and so forth. Also, this was um, a decade that saw a massive change in demographics in this part of the world. Uh, dehydrated milk, antibiotics were uh, spread out elsewhere, and people didn't change their, uh, uh, their behavior, their familial behavior, if I may say so, for lack of a, of a euphemism in English that I would know to mention that. And uh, 10 years before, 20 years before, they would have 10 children, at, uh, and two would survive. Now they would have 10 children, and uh, 8 or 10 would survive. Uh, this was a part of the world uh, that was mainly rural. People lived and survived in the, country, in the countryside. Uh, when they became uh, so numerous, uh, they had to flee to the big cities, and not to the urban centers, but to the peripheries of the big cities, where uh, people would live in shanty towns, in, uh, in shacks, and uh, they would create a new population uh, that uh, was not rural anymore, that was not following the um, uh, the teachings of the uh, of the brotherhoods of the uh, rural uh, Sufi orders of the um, uh, spiritual uh, Islam, if you wish, uh, that from time immemorial had uh, dealt with uh, issues of water, of fields, of disputes between families and the like. And they suddenly were thrown into this new world of the urban peripheries, where uh, the traditional Islam of uh, spirituality was unfit to deal with uh, developers, with police, with mafia, and the like. And um, so this uh, sort of lost generation that was displaced, massively displaced, and which um, changed significantly um, the um, the geography of this part of the world, because until the mid-1970s, most people lived in the countryside. Afterwards, they would mainly live in the, in the, in the cities and in their peripheries. Uh, this new generation also underwent a major change. It's, uh, it was the first generation that became literate, massively literate, mainly for boys. Girls would follow suit a little later. And... Um, it would become literate in the language, in the official language of the country, in, Ara in modern Arabic, in modern Turkish, in modern uh, what have you, Urdu or Farsi, 
languages that had been recreated or revamped by the ruling elites in order to ascertain their own power after the demise of the colonial powers, as uh, Benedict Anderson has it in Imagine Communities. I mean, the, the written language is a major tool for um, power to establish a nationhood that it controls. So you had this new educated or literate generation, high school level, that was not pleased with uh, its situation, that was, uh, uh, that was um, not pleased with the rulers, that was literate, and that instead of using its literacy to receive passively the message coming from the top, from the rulers, about order, about socialism, about uh, whatever ideology uh, the rulers of the time would like to spread, this new generation was able to, uh, to use those uh, skills in, uh, at, in written language, in order, and reading language, in order to uh, read, understand, and put into practice the revolutionary message that the most radical uh, ideologues and leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood namely someone like Sayyid Qutb, right, Q-O-T-B, in Egypt, uh, had written. Those uh, people explained to whoever would uh, listen that the world was not really Muslim anymore, even in Muslim countries, that rulers had betrayed Islam, that they were um, actually parallel to uh, the rulers uh, that trained in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula before the uh, advent of Islam, what is known in Muslim parlance as Jahiliya, or the age of ignorance or of barbarity, if you, if you wish. And that, just like the Prophet had uh, destroyed uh, this world of paganism and built Islam on its ruins, the, um, the new vanguard, the new Quranic, uh, as he calls it, Quranic generation of, of the 20th century, had to destroy this old world and build a new Islamic world on its ruins. And if you listen to that, I mean, it, it, is, it echoes to some extent uh, uh, a Marxist message, but, uh, and it was not without uh, uh, the influence of this sort of a revolutionary model, but it was not at all. It was very anti-communist, anti-Marxist, which was considered atheist, and uh, this is a major sin. But nevertheless, it was a message that was able to convey both an aspiration at the, the toppling of the social hierarchies, on the one hand, and also, by the same token, as is the case with uh, all religions, or most religions, uh, at least all the religions I know, uh, it also conveyed uh, the possibility of uh, reorganizing social order in order to, to topple the order that be, the powers that be, and also to reorganize uh, a strong and, um, and uh, binding uh, social order for tomorrow. And so this, this upsurge of, uh, of uh, Islam on the political scene had a dual dimension. One that was radical, that would manifest itself, at least in the Sunni world, with the strong opposition to uh, uh, not only to Nasser in Egypt, but then 
after a brief honeymoon to uh, Sadat's policy of uh, peace with Israel, and that would uh, lead ultimately to the assassination of Sadat by a Muslim uh, radical, by Islamist radicals, whether or not they, uh, they, did, they did that entirely on their own, uh, whether uh, the, uh, some people turned a blind eye on the fact that uh, a, a young military officer uh, was allowed to uh, get uh, in a parade where the chief of state with, was present with uh, weapons and cartridges. Uh, this is something that one day uh, the archives will, uh, may let us know. Uh, but whoever was, was behind the assassination of Sadat, anyway, it was implemented by the name of Islamist radicals and in the name by Islamist radicals and in the name of jihad, and the uh, the organization that killed him uh, called itself Tanzim al-Jihad, the, the the jihad organization. That's on the radical side, and on the other hand, in the 1970s, uh, the 1970s witnessed the development of a much more conservative dimension of Islam that was much closer to Western interests and to American interests in particular, uh, an Islam that was dear also to, to the Brits, uh, that had to a large extent helped, him, uh, helped it uh, emerge, that is the Wahhabi uh, Islam of Saudi uh, Arabia. And um, uh, both of them were very much present in the, in the 1970s. The, uh, the first important issue was that a, it came, Islam, whatever, whatever it was, came center stage, i.e., until the mid-1970s, nationalism, whether it be liberal, socialist, uh, traditional, what have you, was a central issue. There was no such thing as an organization of the Islamic Conference, no such thing as a Muslim World League. It was only created in 1962, and so on and so forth. And people would not systematically start there. If I were in Egypt, if I were a Muslim, I would have been compelled socially uh, today to start my uh, talk with uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the name of God, the merciful, the misericordious, something which did not exist under Nasser's time. Under Nasser's time, the laws were made Bismillah in the name of the people. Now, there again, it's in the name of God and so on and so forth. And uh, so Islam moved center stage uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one being that there was this kind of pressure from the young generation that, and particularly the young, educated, uh, sort of hopeless generation that saw no future in, its, uh, in a system of uh, education that led nowhere to a large extent. And also because you had this um, this very uh, significant impact of, uh, of conservative Islam that uh, manifested itself um, very strongly on the occasion of the October War of uh, 1973. Uh, 1973 was um, a very significant event. Uh, as you know, uh, the Arabs had been defeated in uh, June of 1967 in the Six-Day War. Uh, Nasser's legitimacy was, uh, was in shambles. Uh, 
And, um, and then uh, Arab governments, uh, mostly the Egyptian and the Syrian governments, had to retaliate. And in order to save, uh, to, to, to have a face-saving in front of their populations, populations that did not elect them because they were autocratic rules, rulers, uh, they had to launch uh, an offensive against Israel that would at least look like it was victorious, or at least they would have to take the initiative. And um, so in October of 73, they, they launched uh, this initiative, which is this war, uh, the October War is the secular name for it. The, um, uh, it's, often, it's often called the Kippur War because it uh, caught the uh, Israelis unawares because it was Yom Kippur. And, uh, but the most important way of calling it probably, or the most significant, is the Ramadan War, because it took place during the fasting month of Ramadan. And uh, what did that mean? It meant that uh, in order for soldiers, for Muslim soldiers to fight and not to fast during Ramadan, then jihad has to be proclaimed. Now, what is jihad? And, uh, who proclaims it and uh, who is, is allowed to do so. Uh, jihad in Arabic comes from a root. Most Arabic words are organized around three uh, main letters or roots, uh, which is uh, J-H-D, um, something that means effort or strive, striving. And uh, jihad uh, Originally, it means the effort to, to be better, to, uh, for effort for good, effort to be a good Muslim, not to drink, not to uh, uh, whatever, not to be uh, attracted by your basic instincts, if I may say so. And um, so this is the, the jihad of the soul that everybody is supposed to, to implement in his daily life. Then you have a social and uh, political jihad, uh, which uh, is translated um, into military action, uh, a jihad which, if you wish, could be understood as a sort of crusade in reverse. Uh, two kinds of jihad of that sort. One, the jihad of expansion, something which was um, the main drive behind the expansion of uh, the Arab empire in order to open, as they say in Arabic, fath new territories to Islam, and this is not compulsory, this is something that volunteers or the army does uh, under the guidance of the caliph. And then another type of jihad, which is compulsory for everybody in the Muslim world, is the defense jihad, i.e. when the land of Islam is occupied by infidels, then everybody has to fight jihad, whether it be by the sword, if he can afford it, if he can't fight if, uh, by, with money, and, uh, and if, if he can uh, neither fight nor pay, he can at least pray. So it's either by the hand, by the tongue, or by the heart. Now, who is allowed to say, let's fight jihad? It, because it's a very complicated issue. Because as you understand, uh, jihad... Um, Go, comes supreme and uh, overcomes everything else. Uh, the, you don't have to fast. You don't even have to pray. Uh, you have to, to, to mobilize to save the Muslim community because, you know, you can always pray and fast if this 
says to be done at the expense of the survival of the community, then it's, it's needless, which is something that shows you how, in a way, how plastic uh, Islam is as a doctrine. You know, people see it as, you know, as totally fixed, and it is not. It's something that can adapt and adjust uh, very often. And um, so when, uh, who, 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 who is entitled, who has, um, who is authorized, if I may say so? Uh, it's a very complicated issue because you always know when jihad starts, but it's very difficult to know when it ends. And uh, so in the good old days, uh, before uh, the internet, before Twitter, and when people, uh, few people read books, and when you know the ones who read had the authority to tell the others what they had to do, uh, the, the good old time when the professors were well paid, uh, and the ulemas also, uh, the Muslim scholars, the ones who were in the know, i.e., the ones who could read the sacred text and interpret it, who were uh, uh, sort of recognized by their peers as scholars, as Islamic scholars, knew or they could discern when and how to uh, call for jihad. The problem being that if jihad was used indistinctly, then it proved to be a two-edged sword. And it could turn against those who had um, started using it, particularly on the domestic scene. For instance, if you call for jihad against an unjust ruler or a ruler who was not Muslim enough, then it might backlash and lead to the uh, opposite of jihad, i.e. fitna. Fitna means division, uh, internal strife that makes of the world of Islam an easy prey for its enemies. This was in the good old days. Nowadays, everybody can call for jihad. Uh, Arne, Mick, uh, myself, we can uh, call for jihad and at uh, ideas, and uh, I may actually uh, think about it if you, um, if you still insist on my drinking South African wine, and uh, which is I take as a personal insult. And uh, the um, hope there are no South Africans in the room. I have nothing against South Africa. You know, so I think I'm a tradition, a man of tradition, and uh, and a chauvinist. And the uh, so the. Um, um, then um, this, is, this is a difficult issue. In 1973, the, uh, the Mufti or the, the Grand Mufti of the Republic of Egypt, who's an appointee of the, was an appointee of Sadat, called for jihad. Hence, Muslim soldiers fought, and they, uh, they crossed the Suez Canal in the name of Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. They managed to cross the canal, and, uh, and, so, and the Syrians also managed to, to reclaim parts of the Golden Heights that Israel had occupied in 1967. And um, then, thanks to the U.S. airlift uh, to uh, Lod Airport and to airports in Israel, the Israelis were able to launch a counteroffensive to cross the canal back, and they stopped uh, uh, on the Su uh, Suez-Cairo uh, Road, 101 kilometers from Cairo. Militarily, Cairo was open, but there was a major pressure that came from oil-exporting countries that uh, 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 decreed the uh, embargo on uh, hydrocarbons 
against all uh, allies of Israel, which sent the uh, oil prices skyrocketing, and which made of Saudi Arabia and its allies, but mainly of King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, the biggest producer and the one who had taken the initiative, the key player in the Middle East. So there you had a very strong conservative uh, Islamic kingdom that was becoming the key player, that was staunchly anti-communist, but that did, had not hesitated using the oil weapon against America, its ally, but the Saudis thought that America had betrayed them because they had been far too far in favor of Israel. Simultaneously, you had all those radical developments in Egypt, which the Saudis were worried about, even though they sent a lot of money to Egypt to build mosques, to uh, read Korans, and so on and so forth, hoping that they would sort of flood this Islamist movement with their money, and uh, that they would sort of make them more conservative than they were socially. But the big surprise came not from within the Sunni world, but from the Shia world in Iran, where in 1979, as you know, uh, 78 and 79, the Islamic Revolution took place. An Islamic Revolution which had very strong, and still has, if we listen to Ahmadinejad, um, revolutionary and third-worldist overtones as opposed to the Saudis, who were strong uh, allies of the West uh, in their own way, uh, the Iranian revolutionaries were very much anti-American. Marbar Amerika, death to America, the great Satan, was the, was the favorite slogan. And not only was Iran anti-American, but it was also uh, very strongly um, anti-Saudi. Uh, anti and it considered that uh, the petro-monarchies of the, of the Arabian Peninsula were uh, lackeys of the West, that uh, the Saudi monarchs stopped uh, worshipping Allah, but they worshipped the dollar and the, the barrel of, of oil, and that they had to be uh, wiped away by uh, an Islamic revolution on, on Saudi soil, something which did not make the Saudis particularly happy. Uh, and um, that's, um, that was one, uh, one major problem in the Gulf area. So while in 1979, on the Levant front, uh, U.S. interests seemed to be protected because uh, Anwar al-Sadat had gone to Israel and had signed a peace treaty uh, which meant that um, the Israelis felt safe and Sadat had sold peace at a very, very expensive price to Jimmy Carter. That is to say that uh, he got a tremendous amount of U.S. aid in order for Egypt not to fight against Israel, which allowed for the Egyptian regime to survive in the face of this huge uh, demographic explosion and the huge challenges that, can, that do not make Egypt viable today. 
while the U.S. thought that things were okay on the Israeli-Arab front, then everything exploded, exploded in the Gulf, with Iran uh, turning revolutionary, and with Saddam Hussein, who was at the time the best friend of the West, uh, declaring war on Iran in September 1980. Now, Saddam Hussein waged war on Iran because he was convinced that the country was in deep turmoil and that he could benefit from this uh, havoc in order to widen its shoreline on the, uh, on the Gulf, on the Persian Gulf. Uh, Iraq has only 46 kilometers of, of coast. And uh, also because uh, all uh, Gulf countries uh, pushed him uh, to attack uh, Iran because they were absolutely panic panic-stricken at the idea that Iran would uh, would develop its activities against them. At the time, the best friends of Saddam Hussein were Dick Cheney, uh, vice who was not vice president of the U.S. He was uh, he was uh, unofficial ambassador and uh, a famous French politician whose name I will not uh, tell you, but that rhymes with Iraq. And uh, the uh, uh, then um, there was there was this this feeling that um, you know the the whole Western system of alliances was in danger. All the more so as in the, the Christmas of 1979, the Red Army invaded Afghanistan. Why did they do so? Um, not so much that they wanted to expand, as was believed at the time, but they, um, it was a sort of uh, Prague coup, if you wish, in, in Central Asia. Uh, the year before, uh, a pro-communist uh, coup had taken place in Afghanistan. Um, it had uh, led to a political catastrophe for the, the Afghan CP. Uh, the whole uh, country was in revolt, and um, then uh, the, the Soviets felt that their, uh, their allies would be ousted, so they sent a new leadership uh, of the CP that came from Moscow. They got rid of the old one, executed them, and then the Soviet, Soviet troops were there to... Uh, uh, to ensure that uh, this country would um, be in the fold of the Soviet system. And as you know, uh, Afghanistan was the, was the place for uh, Kipling's, uh, I'm feeling very British tonight, Kipling's uh, great game, only that uh, the USSR had replaced uh, Imperial Russia and uh, the US had replaced uh, the U uh, Britain. Access to the, uh, the warm seas was, uh, was an important issue. Uh, Iran was in turmoil. The Iranian Communist Party was well represented at, in the beginning of the revolution in the governing bloc. And um, so this was perceived by uh, many in uh, President Carter's entourage, particularly by Zbigniew Brzezinski, and something that would then be... Uh, developed by the Reagan administration as a golden opportunity, uh, a golden opportunity to, uh, to destroy uh, the Soviet Union, to uh, kill uh, two birds with one stone, A, 
got, get rid of the Soviet Union through a proxy war led by uh, Afghan uh, Mujahideen or jihad fighters who were, uh, if I may say so, christened as uh, freedom fighters by the U.S. administration at the time and also to uh, get rid or to minimize very significant, significantly the influence of, um, of Iran. Iran, uh, this, uh, described itself as the key revolutionary uh, Muslim country uh, that was hostile to the West. Uh, and then the US and uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the West in general were backing uh, a movement in Afghanistan that would uh, fan the embers of anti-communism and that would show that uh, Sunni, radical Sunni Islam was able to defeat what was painted by uh, the US and its local allies as Islam's worst enemies, i.e. communism. Uh, and uh, so the, uh, the Afghan Jihad was, uh, was, uh, was a case in point. It was, uh, if you wish, it was the, the time when the um, when, uh, as I said in the introduction, when uh, when this when political Islam um, started to play this this major major role in international affairs, um, things turned did not turn very well for the for the, the for the Red Army, particularly when the U.S. started to equip. Uh, Mujahideen uh, Afghan fighters with uh, Stinger uh, ground-to-air missiles. Uh, the uh, Soviet Air Force uh, could not be airborne anymore. The, um, their tanks that had been designed to cross the plains of Europe uh, to the English Channel uh, were totally uh, useless in the um, 8,000 meters uh, high uh, uh, peaks in Afghanistan, and uh, therefore uh, Gorbachev had no choice but to uh, consider that uh, a pullout. The interesting thing was that, um, well, we do know, everybody knows that um, the pullout uh, took place in, 19, in 1989, but uh, very, people, very few people, I think, make the link with uh, what would happen later, i.e. 11-9, something that would make you think of 9-11, 11-9 being the fall of the Berlin Wall. But I'm sure that most of you uh, in this room do not remember the 15th of February, 1989. Am I mistaken? I'm not, right, because you all remember the, the day before, the 14th of February. Well, you're going to uh, Valentine's Day. Well, true. But uh, for the Brits, it was a very important date. Do you remember what happened in, uh, on the 14th of uh, February, 1989? Mick Cox will uh, give you a pint of uh, Irish beer, if you understand, with the ID's logo on it. Well, it was uh, the Ayatollah's infamous fatwa to uh, kill uh, British citizen Salman Rushdie for uh, the satanic verses. And why did he do that on Valentine's Day? Not that he fell in love with uh, whoever. Uh, he was sending uh, Valentines uh, that way, a peculiar way, but because he understood 
that with the, the Soviet pullout, um, Sunni radicals and their Saudi, Kuwaiti, and uh, uh, American godfathers would uh, take all the benefits uh, in terms of the mobilization of Islam, and that Iran would lose in, in this same endeavor. And um, the, the Rushdie Fatwa was, was a means to, um, to demonstrate to the world that uh, Iran, revolutionary Iran, was the defender, the herald and hero par excellence of uh, Muslims who were mocked, ridiculed, despised, and whatever uh, by uh, the uh, satanic verses, Britain, Mrs. Thatcher, and the whole world. And uh, so this was the way he, he tried to, if you wish, he tried to, to answer, and he sort of hijacked the mobilization in Britain. You remember that uh, a month before, on the 14th of January, it was the famous book burning uh, in Bradford. And uh, this was an interesting consequence of the, of the, of the jihad in Afghanistan, i.e., after, after that, uh, Khomeini died, maybe, of sorrow in June of 1989. And until uh, Ahmadinejad was, uh, was elected in, uh, in 2005, yes, 2005, then Iran sort of got back into real politics and was not very present in, on the revolutionary stage. The... Uh, that was one thing that, you know, was extremely significant in the world system at the macro level, if I may say so. Now, something else took place also, which, which went un, unseen, unforeseen, and ununderstood maybe by, uh, by uh, U.S. and to some extent Saudi, but mainly U.S. backers of the, of the jihad in Afghanistan. Together with the, the locals or the natives of the Afghan uh, Mujahideen who belong to very different, uh, uh, not only walks of life, but walks of Islam, if I may say so, uh, came to Afghanistan uh, what we may call uh, international brigades of, uh, of jihadists. And, you know, Mujahideen and jihadists mean the same. Uh, except that Mujahideen is an entirely Arab name, uh, Arabic name, whereas jihadist is uh, something made on the jihad or out of a Latin uh, suffix. But the, by jihadists, we usually mean non-Afghan jihad fighters, people coming from Egypt, from uh, uh, Birmingham, from Aubervilliers, from uh, uh, Algeria, from uh, Pakistan, from... Uh, Mindanao, uh, and uh, who would consider that the call for jihad was universal. It was not limited to Afghans, that all Muslims had to, to participate in it. And uh, they would gather in, um, in Peshawar and uh, under the guidance of a number of uh, radicalized Muslim brothers, such as someone called Abdallah Azam, a Palestinian from uh, 
uh, Jenin, who would die in 1989, uh, killed by another uh, Afghan uh, Islamic war chief. And those people had a different agenda. To them, uh, the liberation of Afghanistan from Soviet yoke was only the first step to uh, the restoration of Islam as they saw it. And they considered their, um, their political action as a replay, as a remake, if you wish, of, uh, of the prophets jest. Um, uh, as the prophet had destroyed the Sassanid Empire, or his armies had destroyed the Sassanid Empire, at the Battle of, of, of Ctesiphon, they had destroyed the Soviet Empire because to their mind it was clear that it was thanks to them that the Soviet Empire had been destroyed. They just forgot about the Stinger missiles and this uh, reasoning, generally speaking. And then they would turn against Byzantium as the, the early Muslims had conquered the Byzantine provinces of the east southern and the eastern shores of the Mediterranean and would finally uh, conquer uh, Constantinople in 1453. In this Weltanschauung, Byzantium was America, was uh, the Twin Towers, if you want, or the Pentagon or the Congress. And um, within those circles, so this this sort of uh, idea took shape that they should um, duplicate, at first, the Afghan Jihad, duplicate it uh, in countries from which those people were coming. So at the time, right after the Soviet uh, army had pulled out from Afghanistan, uh, U.S. and um, Petro, uh, monarchy, the U.S. and the Petro monarchy started to be worried about those uh, former uh, freedom fighters. Now they were described as uh, ugly uh, or dirty terrorists, and um, funding was stopped. And um, it was perceived as something, you know, without without much importance. If you, if you read uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, The, the Great Chessboard, he, uh, and he was the one who launched this, this idea of the proxy war against, uh, against uh, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, even though Reagan, uh, the Reagan administration reaped uh, the benefits. Um, then he, um, he said, you know, People would object to him, but you, you destroyed, okay, destroyed the Soviet system, but it introduced, you know, this, uh, this new kind of threat to the West, uh, radical Islamism, and he would say, well, this has no importance, you know, those, those people were active as long as we paid them, but when we stop paying them, they will disappear uh, from sight because they have no country to, to, to rely upon, and the only country they have is Iran. Iran was morally defeated, and so they did not pay much attention to what would happen in the 1990s. That is, this, the attempt by many of the, of the veterans 
of the uh, of the Afghan war, what would be called later the the Arab Afghans in Arab countries, who came back home to um, sort of re enact the Afghan jihad in their own in their own countries. They considered that now Egypt, Algeria, Bosnia, and other countries were um, lands of Islam that were governed by an impious ruler, even if he pretended to be Muslim, and that they had to, um, as a vanguard, as the, uh, as the, the new uh, Quranic generation, as the, the reenactment of the prophet's generation, if you wish, they had to destroy the barbarian, the, um, the pre-Islamic state of Egypt, of, uh, of Mubarak or of uh, Shadli in Algeria or whoever, and to, to do what had succeeded so well in, Iran, in Afghanistan, i.e. establish an Islamic state. It did not succeed at all in Afghanistan. And uh, this, this was, uh, this was uh, what happened in the 1990s in Egypt, in Algeria, in Bosnia, civil war. Uh, ignited originally by those um, returnees from uh, from Afghanistan, something which in its turn failed and uh, because they were unable to mobilize the masses as they had expected and this failure and this is something I will sum up very briefly because I mentioned it last time this failure uh, led to uh, the fact that some people, such as Ayman Zawahiri, the, the supremo uh, thinker of an ideologue of uh, Al-Qaeda, considered that it was useless to waste one's time to fight against what he called the nearby enemy, but that uh, what was important was to focus on the faraway enemy, and I quote here the title of uh, one of my esteemed colleague uh, Fawaz Jerzis's book, um, and to, to strike at America. And striking at America, in a way, was the, um, the achievement, it was, the, was the, the end of, the, of their dream if you wish. Uh, as they had destroyed uh, the Soviet Union, they would destroy, even symbolically, America. Well, they did not think that the destruction of the Twin Towers would, would destroy the whole American system, but it would be a major blow and it would be something that would give courage to uh, the Muslim masses that would turn against their rulers and then engineer a vast mobilization of which they would uh, be the leaders something that there again did not, um, did not function. And uh, to a large extent, Iraq, which was the, um, the place where uh, the, the radicals uh, expected to reenact the Afghan jihad, uh, where they expected to mobilize Muslims against the uh, American and uh, British and uh, whatever invasion, of a land of Islam, this was the, the, the cemetery of their illusions. Because instead of, uh, of killing uh, American and British soldiers, which they did, they mainly uh, fought an intra-Muslim ba battle, and uh, Sunnis would kill Shiites and vice versa. And then the uh, famous jihad would turn into its opposite fitna, i.e. internal strife. Nowadays, so 
to, to some extent, and the irony of history is that we are back to stage one. We are back to Afghanistan. Uh, when President Obama uh, decided to, uh, and mainly as far as I understand the American system, under the influence of Vice President Biden, uh, to go back to Afghanistan, his view was that the, re the reason the war on terror failed was that uh, President Bush uh, Jr., instead of concentrating on the destruction of the terrorist networks of uh, al-Qaeda, and after uh, he had wiped out the Taliban government in um, 2001, in late 2001, had diverted its efforts against Iraq, and with the false pretext of the weapons of mass uh, destruction, which is uh, well known in this uh, country, um, then had sent troops to Iraq where he waged this war against Saddam Hussein with an entirely different agenda, i.e. reshuffling the Middle East. Uh, Saddam uh, had, uh, they had, there were many things that could be said against Saddam that he was not behind al-Qaeda. And then um, Obama and Biden uh, believed that what was to be done in order to secure the pullouts uh, from Iraq and to win the victory, to win the war against terrorism and not against terror, was to destroy what remained of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Hence, the choice to focus against the Al Qaeda people, the few hundreds of Al Qaeda people remaining in Afghanistan which would allow him to say to his public opinion, we pulled out the troops from Iraq, and by the same token, we did not lose face. We destroyed the, the terrorists where Bush had failed because of, of, sorry, of the so-called war on terror. Well, the problem is that whatever remains of al-Qaeda is protected by the revamped Taliban. And as opposed to al-Qaeda, which are a, a tiny group of, of, uh, revolu of, in, of uh, global revolutionaries, if you wish, with no grassroots and grassroots support, the Taliban have a major grassroots support. And this grassroots support uh, has been uh, clearly boosted by uh, the, the, the failures of the, uh, of the Karzai government. And... Um, um, what is very striking is that we now see NATO forces to some extent in the position in which the Red Army was in the 1980s. You know, there again, the, the chicken for some other time are coming home to roost. Hence the, uh, hence the centrality of this Afghan jihad issue, which is now being replayed against those who thought they were so wise that they could play it against their adversaries. With this, I will, uh, with this, those deep thoughts about history and the, the la ruse de l'histoire, I know how you say that in English, I will uh, go back to our specialist of East-West relations. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Jill. Um, we have... Or 20 minutes or so, a little bit more perhaps, if we stretch it for, for questions. Could I just start with a very brief uh, question with regard to what happened in the early 2000s after the intervention in Iraq? Uh, 
um, since we had the Iraq hearings getting underway, at least in the public forum today, it's a question that I think really should be asked on this occasion. The way I understood your analysis of Iraq was that this was a battle in which the Sunni Islamists engaged, but could never really get the upper hand, not just because it ended up in a fitna, but in, 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 in a fitna that they lost in a, in a battle against other Muslims that they eventually lost to a coalition of, 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 of Shia parties. What kind of impact do you think that had, particularly in the critical 2005-2006 period, on jihadists elsewhere? Was this something that was taken on board as part of their strategic thinking about how to further their own uh, battles elsewhere? I'm thinking about the Sunni uh, uh, jihadists here. Or was it something that was seen simply as a reflection of the support uh, that, in their mind, Iraqi Shias got from, from foreigners, from, from the foreign occupiers? Um, <clears throat> let's put that into context. Um, when the U.S. and its allies uh, invaded Iraq, um, one of the main issues on the agenda was that um, the Bush administration believed that they could not trust their Saudi ally anymore because you had 15 out of the 19 hijackers who were from Saudi Arabia. They thought that the Saudis the you know the the princes and the, the 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 Washington and the New York and whatever Saudis could say whatever they wanted it did not reflect at best reality but probably they were cheating the Americans and uh, that they needed to to find and to um, uh, a, a new type of leadership in the region that they would mold out of the Iraqi opposition. An Iraqi opposition, which was because the majority of the population of Iraq is Shia, which was Shia. And this uh, Shia Iraq, this Iraq that would be dominated by the Shias, by pro-Western Shias, would there again kill two birds with one stone. Uh, not only undermine um, if you wish, Sunni Arab domination of the, of the Gulf and of the oil exporting world, because uh, if the Iraq oil fields uh, function uh, full bloom, I mean, this, this uh, Saudi Arabia will not remain the swing producer of oil. And they also thought that by virtue of example, uh, Iraqi Shia civil society would make their uh, uh, Iranian co-religionists believe that they could oust the uh, the Ayatollahs and uh, and have also a, a pro-Western uh, uh, Shia Iran. And um, it is true that if you if you go to Iran and if you talk to most people in northern Tehran. Uh, uh, you know, this uh, Iran may be the place where America is, is the only place where America is popular in the Middle East. Actually, no. and uh, the uh, not in not in all of Iran, but uh, amongst the the well-to-do people. And um, so, 
Now, this was perceived with a lot of anxiety in the Petro monarchies, and uh, I have very little doubt that the insurgency in Iraq was encouraged uh, by, uh, I should say, petrol dollars. Uh, and as long as the U.S. did not make a deal in order to uh, give Iraqi Sunnis their share, a fair share in government and in oil, then, you know, the insurgency would um, have gone on. And the, the so-called Sahwa movement or the awakening movement uh, was not, did, not, did not just take place because tribal chiefs suddenly disliked al-Qaeda or because, uh, you know, suddenly they, they liked W. They were paid. And who pays in this part of the world? Uh, you know, not the wind or the birds or what have you. So um, this was part of the deal that would bring Saudi Arabia and the Petro monarchies back uh, in, the, in the front line, which is now the case. I mean, clearly, uh, um, and with a weak U.S. presidency, uh, I think they feel they have no choice. Now, Saudi Arabia is back on the front line as the key American ally. Now, um, in terms of the jihadists, within jihadist ideology, the fact that so much Muslim blood was shed started to be a real problem. Well, originally, I mean, Shia blood was worth nothing for, you know, for the most doctrinaire of the South, of the, um, of the Al-Qaeda ideologues, you know, Shias are worse than Christians and Jews. Uh, but this is difficult to explain to uh, your average Muslim worldwide because the guy is called Muhammad and is killed by another Muhammad, and and it's you know it's complicated. And you know, many people have no idea in the Muslim world, you know they've never met a Shia. They're 15 percent of the world's Muslim population, so go to Africa, most people have no idea what a Shia is. You know, they see Iraqis fighting each other and they cannot all be uh, pinpointed as Tujis of, of America. And then you had, you know, this, these atrocities on, uh, on video, on webcam, and on, on, online. And little by little, there was the feeling that, um, that they were... Uh, the Al-Qaeda leadership in Iraq, particularly Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and, and his uh, inspirers, were, were really thirsty with blood. And uh, that this was counterproductive in terms of political mobilization. And uh, that led to um, the fact that a number of uh, other radical Islamist ideologues started to attack Zawahiri and Ben Laden for that now. To what extent were those ideologues helped or manipulated by this or that secret service of uh, a number of Western countries? They, everybody plays his own game in this, in this, and we, you know, no one should be naive, definitely. Uh, but this introduced an enormous amount of doubt, and the, uh, this sort of, um, leadership role that al-Qaeda wanted to play. You know, Obama now is in, uh, is in the back seat. It's Ahmadinejad who, uh, who wants to be the 
real opposition to to the West, and uh, and he has a state behind him. It's not like the other who just had this fake uh, uh, Iraqi Islamic caliphate, which was just uh, peanuts. Thank you very much. It was very very interesting. Other questions? Let us start right at the back in the white shirt over there, and I'll take one over there as well afterwards. Uh, thank Please. you. Um, to what extent do you think um, Al-Qaeda is inspired by what might be described as a, a Guevara strategy? Of be is, is inspired by what? A, a, a Guevara strategy. Oh, yeah. Che Guevara said in, famously in the 1960s, mm. create one, two, three, many Vietnams in order to wear down mm. the United States. To what extent do you think Al-Qaeda is following a strategy of trying to bog the Americans and their allies down in a whole series of wars in the way that uh, Che Guevara sought to do in the 1960s? Thank you very much. I'll take one more question over there, if that's all right with you. Sure, no yeah, problem. Good. Please, sir. Yes. Um, one idea is to divide Afghanistan into two countries, north and south, and Kabul to the south, because which presumably would be quickly seized by the Taliban. Similarly, the northwest frontier should be allowed to secede from Pakistan, and it's uh, likely it would join a Taliban-led South Afghanistan. Mm. Okay. So, so we what's, have a quick your, what's your to map? This? North, North Afghanistan yes, would join the northwest frontier province. No, Mm. Would be a Taliban enclave. Yeah. Okay. East kind of Pashtunistan solution, I think, is the idea. Okay, I got it. Okay, so Che Guevara, uh, as some of you may know, his name, the V and B are the same in Spanish, and Guevara is Jbara from uh, uh, southern Lebanon originally, and belongs to the Mahjar, that is to say, the the uh, Lebanese uh, immigration to America. I don't know if Fawaz, you agree with that or think it's a legend. And um, so uh, then you may think. And uh, nowadays, you know, with, I just read in the train this morning that uh, Hugo Chavez had uh, celebrated Carlos, his uh, compatriot Carlos, as the great revolutionary of our time. Uh, Carlos, who after he... Uh, who's a communist but who converted to, uh, to Islam and uh, then praised Ahmadinejad and others. And, uh, once I was on, on TV in France and I, I said that um, uh, Carlos was not, a Marx, was not a Marxist anymore, that he had converted to Islam. And much to my dismay, Carlos was watching me on TV from his cell in, in jail. So he wrote to me uh, through his wife and lawyer, uh, Isabelle Coutempere, and said, you know, I, uh, I know you, I follow your work, I read your books, and uh, I value what you write, which made me sort of uh, quiver, and, uh, <laughs> and said, uh, what have I done? And he said, he wrote to me, you know, uh, uh, you're not right. Uh, his name is Vladimir Ilich, uh, whatever, Ramirez Sanchez. And... Uh, said, no, no, I'm, I'm still a Marxist. I mean, I'm, I'm a Leninist. And, uh, but nowadays, Islam is the voice of the oppressed. So uh, this, this genius whose name I bear is still my, uh, my inspiration. And that, that there's, there is no contradiction. And uh, Tarek Ramadan, whom I saw you uh, uh, talked in this uh, theater and whose photograph figures prominently in the 
Hall of Fame uh, with in between uh, uh, in the waiting room in between uh, uh, whoever the leaders of the world. I mean, I don't know why. I, I don't think I should not come back to LSC probably um, unless you put my photograph instead of his. <laughs> this is your challenge. Uh, and Tarek Ramadan also, just like the Iranians, uh, if you wish, have sort of mixed this sort of third-worldism with uh, Islamism, right? And, and in Iran, the man who did that was someone called Ali Shariati, the son of an Ayatollah, who came to France, for, for once it's not the fault of the Brits, we are the called Brits, but it's rare, it's usually your fault. And, uh, we, and he, uh, he was in France at the time of the Algerian War of Independence, uh, socialized with, um, with the Algerians who were in France and translated into Farsi uh, the, um, the, the book by Franz Fanon, the, the Wretched of the Earth in English? The Wretched of the Earth? And where he translated the oppressed as Mustadafin, that is to say, he translated a, a word that functioned in Marxist parlance into a word that functioned in Islamic parlance. Mustadafin is a Quranic term that means the ones who are humbled. And the oppressors, uh, also belonging to Marxist parlance, it translated as mustagbirin. They say the arrogance, if you wish, the ones who think they're higher than they are, or bigger than they are. And um, establishing a sort of uh, of linkage, of passage between two systems of thought, right? And uh, establishing uh, a few inch uh, bridges. Um, now, then there is a sort of continuity, a vague continuity between all those movements who borrow from each other. But stating that uh, Al-Qaeda is Gevarist uh, by the book, if you wish, uh, may make Maybe going a little uh, too too far. As oh, it was uh, Che Guevara, uh, Carlos also yes, coming Carlos. from yes, his uh, Carlos. Carlos calling from in jail again and saying no no no. <laughs> now as far as um, as far as um, uh, as the f the future of Afghanistan is concerned, when well, uh, we know that the Brits are good at carving out countries, uh, the uh, um, and um, um, I'm not uh, I'm not privy to any uh, any talk of um, uh, having a sort of uh, Talibanistan in the in the south and then uh, a northwest frontier province that would uh, secede from Pakistan and be joined with the rest because uh, the Taliban are mainly uh, Pashtun or Patan, Pathans, and um, in the Northwest Frontier Province, or uh, NWFP, as the Brits who created the Durand Line, actually, to carve out in between of the Pashtun lands, um, is also mainly Pashtun. So uh, I, I do not think that the Durand Line could be erased. Uh, and you know, if you carve out uh, NWFP from Pakistan, then it's a catastrophe for Pakistan, which and the military establishment of Pakistan would never accept it. 
Any questions upstairs? But who knows? Yes, at, at, right at the back over there. Just keep your hands up, anyone else, if there are, are questions up there. Please, yeah, go ahead. Um, I've heard of uh, Excuse me, who's, talk, who's talking? Right at the back, up on the top. Oh, sorry, sorry. Fine. I've heard talk of um, jihadists. Could, could you speak uh, up? Because I've heard uh, talk of jihadists and mujahideen. Um, and it sounds like you're saying they're like soul sort of fighters that travel countries. Could you uh, give a stronger definition of, of what you believe they are and the demographic? Mujahideen and jihadists? Yeah. Just in okay. wait. We'll take one more question then sure. from, from down here, right at the, at the front. Yep. Um, to, uh, you talked a bit about uh, the domestic uh, exhibitions of, of jihad here in Britain. And I was just wondering what you thought were the domestic underlying causes, uh, aside from uh, you know, what they're hearing from abroad, uh, for young uh, Muslim men in Britain getting involved in that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Good. Two good questions. Uh, but we'll, we'll deal with that more in detail uh, during another of the lectures, right? Mm. That uh, were imposed on me. Uh, the, uh, the difference between uh, Mujahideen and Jihadists and uh, the, uh, uh, the demographics. Um, well, all Jihadists call themselves Mujahideen. It's uh, the scholarly community that uh, decided to call the Arabs who went to Afghanistan jihadists in order to differentiate them from the Mujahideen, meaning that the Mujahideen were coming out of the local community, that they were Afghans and uh, Afghans. And to some extent, this, this answers your question because the Mujahideen had uh, grassroots, uh, uh, how to say it, um, well, the, yeah, they, 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 were, they were socialized. I mean, they, they represented the community. This is the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, if you wish. I would, nowadays we don't call the Taliban Mujahideen anymore. We call them the Taliban. But the Taliban call themselves Mujahideen because they, they are fighting jihad. This is the way they, they see what they are doing. They, they, um, they have access. They, they speak the language of the people. Whereas the jihadists are a sort of foreign uh, implant into a society, right? Or they see themselves as a small vanguard that is going to, to mobilize people. So in terms of jihadists, uh, the groups involved in the uh, organized uh, um, things like Al-Qaeda uh, are not very numerous, I would say. The, you probably now, after uh, repression and decades of, uh, of being tracked, uh, I would say uh, a max maximum by the thousands, which is very small, but which can be very dangerous when you have a thousand people who plot together to, to bomb something. Now, one of the main debates on that uh, in the in, in, in terror, terroristology, and I, I'm not one of them, uh, is uh, it's the, what is called the Sageman versus Hoffman debate. Is it leaderless or uh, leader-centered jihad? And uh, as you know, and I was, I was in the States last week, and uh, the big thing in the, in the US press 
about this um, major in the uh, in the U.S. Army, uh, Major Malik Hassan, who uh, had opened fire on uh, 13 soldiers, who had killed 13 soldiers, and uh, shouting "Allahu Akbar," and um, it. We don't know for the time being. I mean, the uh, the, the evidence has not yet been um, given, and it's and uh, the trial has not started. But um, it seems that this person was into uh, what is now being called self self radicalization, i.e., that uh, the internet was the clue, and uh, also uh, his. Um, email relations with an uh, Yemeni uh, imam from uh, who spent most of his time in America and um, so this you know this is an interesting issue because here you have an individual who's related via the internet to an ideologue who's his who's his never seen and who decides on the way he will implement his action now to what extent did this had to do with um, um, personal problems or um, or uh, the fact that he thought he was fighting for a cause or I, for the time being this is unknown but it was a great shock to Americans that uh, you know you had um, you had someone who had gotten up to the rank of major in the U.S. Army, and who would kill uh, 13 soldiers in 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 the name of uh, of religion, you know, if, even though many people may say no, and you know, and the uh, it was not in the name of religion, and uh, a num most Amer American Muslim associations uh, uh, made statements, published statements, saying this man doesn't have anything to do with Islam, which was expected, but nevertheless, it was uh, it was a major issue, particularly after. The Cairo, uh, the Obama Cairo speech, where everything, uh, anything Muslim was great, and you know, because he had to say the opposite of what Bush, what Bush had said, and to to have a sort of big PR operation in the Muslim world, something which now uh, is difficult to deal with and with his constituency at home. Um, now, um, in terms of what makes uh, well. I, to some extent, I answered part of your question, except it was in America and not in Britain. Um, if you if you allow me, I would uh, I would rather keep it for. Uh, you'll have to come next time or the time after. When is it, Mick? We deal with. In, say it again. The third session. Okay. The January lecture. So you'll have to be back in January, but we'll give you a special prize for that, and uh, for your patience. And uh, because it's it's a very complicated issue, I mean, I think we have to go sort of deeper into uh, into the elements of the the, the change in immigration and the sociology of, of uh, Muslim immigration into uh, into Western Europe to try to understand what led to seven seven, for instance. Uh, uh, how come we had the riots in the outskirts of uh, Paris, and you didn't? So we had you had seven seven. We had no comparable terrorist plots at that time and so on and so forth. I mean, this will, I will bring water to this mill later on. There will be two more lectures in Lent term uh, in this series to which you are all very, very welcome. 
Um, LSE Ideas has its ne next event on Thursday this week, where we switch to another part of the world. We're dealing with the political situation in Thailand. That's at 6.30 over in Ideas uh, on, on this, this coming Thursday. Um, let me ask you to join me in thanking Professor Capel for another fascinating lecture. Thank you very much. Please.